0: Good morning and welcome to Trinity Baptist Church. Would you stand together as we sing of the risen Lord, Christ the Lord is risen today. choir will be singing Christ, our hope in life and death. We invite you to join on the third verse and chorus, and then they will sing the repeated chorus at the very end. You may be seated. Children's choir will begin.
1: Therefore, I will hope in Him. Psalm 42, 11. Why are you cast down, on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God.
0: Are a parent of one of these children up here? If you could go ahead and stand so they can find you, and we'll invite the children to be dismissed at this time. So look for your parents, parents, look for your children, and we'll
2: be dismissed. Well, good morning, and welcome to Trinity Baptist Church. So good to see each of you here this morning, and thank you for choosing to worship with us on this wonderful resurrection morning. He is risen. We praise the Lord for this. My name is Jonathan Threlfall, for those of you who don't know me, if you're visiting for the first time, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Trinity Baptist Church. As a church, we exist to proclaim the love of Christ, and we do it in the power of the Spirit and all for the glory of God. And uh, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it is our desire this morning to so exalt Him in our hearts and minds that you would be drawn to see Him for who He truly is. He really is the Savior of the world. He really is Lord because He defeated our greatest enemy, which is death, and that's why we've gathered to worship Him. Our purpose this morning is not to draw attention to ourselves, is not to uh, orient ourselves around any particular person or any particular idea except this one person, Jesus our Savior, because He truly is. So I invite you to pray together with me as I ask God to bless the rest of our service. Would you pray with me? Our Father, thank you for the truth of those words, that Christ is our hope, not only in life but also in death. And I pray that as we sing this morning, as we confess these truths together, as we hear your word read and preached, as we see the gospel dramatized in the baptisms later on, May we understand more clearly and feel more strongly the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen. You stand once again. Come people of the risen King. Let us rejoice
0: one heart and one voice. For the war he fought and the love that, and the, and the battle that he won through his love, death has lost. Revelation 5 tells us that Christ is worthy. He is the one who was found worthy to open the scru- scroll, to break the seals, because he has conquered and won the war that he fought while he was here. While Christ has conquered through his death, burial, and resurrection, He has yet to bring us to himself and create a new heaven and new earth. So today we feel the world is broken. And we feel that the shadows are deepening. But one of the greatest glories of the resurrection is in what is yet to come. Because he lives, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, who is daily interceding for us and will one day return to bring his bride home and make all things new. Is he worthy? He is. He's worthy of all blessing and honor and glory. So let's stand once again, sing, Is he worthy?
3: Is all creation groaning? It
1: is.
3: Is a new creation coming? It is. Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It
4: is.
3: Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? any one were all blessing and honor and glory, is he worthy of
4: this? He is.
3: Does the Father truly love us?
4: He
1: does.
3: Does the Spirit move among us?
1: He does.
3: And does Jesus, our Messiah, hold forever those he loves? He does. Does our God intend to dwell again with us? He does. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole?
0: of jesus name let angels prostrate fall let's continue by singing all hail the power of jesus name right in to crown him with many crowns
4: Uh...
2: has been already, hasn't it? To be able to celebrate the resurrection and to be able to proclaim together, He is worthy. I just love that song. I love the opportunity for us to be able to respond uh, as, a, as a congregation to that question. Uh, you know the meaning there in the book of Revelation about who is worthy to take the scroll and to break open its seals. That scroll refers to To the saving plan of God. Who in the world is worthy to be able to execute that plan, uh, to be able to take it and unroll it and and make it a reality? And as in the context of that that passage, there is a search, a worldwide search for someone who is worthy. No one is found until there is one found, and it is the Lamb that was slain for our sins. He alone is worthy. And that's who we want to exalt and proclaim today. Well, uh, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bible, if you have one, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's our text for this morning, uh, specifically verse 16 through 19, and also I'll be referring to the verse at the very end of the chapter, which is verse uh, 58. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll read these verses to you, and uh, you can follow along silently in your Bible if you have it, or just listen to me as I as I read them, and uh, you'll get a sense for what. Uh, this text is all about. Paul is arguing for the reality of the resurrection. Uh, He's writing within 20 years of Jesus' life. So this is within the the generation of people that were still alive around the events there in first century Jerusalem. Uh, He says near the beginning of this chapter that there are people who can verify whether the things he is saying is is actually true or not. He says, Jesus was seen alive after his crucifixion by a group of more than 500 people. He says at least half of those are still alive today. Implication to his audience, to his readers, he says, you can go check. You can ask them and they can verify what I'm saying. But in verse uh, 16 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, For if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile or pointless in vain. Your faith is futile if Christ has not been raised, and you are still in your sins. Then, those also who have fallen asleep, that's a euphemism for died, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, and then here's the verse I want us to focus on in verse 19. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people Most to be pitied. Then skip down to verse 58. Therefore, in light of what he's just written, he says, My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. All right, I'm going to do a little guessing game with you, okay? See how soon you can guess the name of the person I'm talking about. He lived right before the peak of the Roman Empire in Judea, a Roman province. He was condemned to death by a Roman governor. The method of his execution was crucifixion. And the place was near the city of Jerusalem. Now, if at this point you answered, that's Jesus, your answer would be the same as millions of people around the world but it would also be wrong because I haven't given you enough information. The date of this man's death is not AD 30, but 4 BC. The governor under whom he was executed was not Pontius Pilate, but Publius Quintilius Verus. And what is his name? I don't know because he was one of 2,000 who were crucified during a massive revolt that the Jews um, the Jews tried to overthrow. They tried to drive the Romans from their land in 4 B.C. Now, what's my point here? The very fact that 2,000 years later anyone would know the name of a crucified man, the people in the ancient world would find utterly astonishing because forgetting the memory of the crucified was the whole point of crucifixion. Crucifixion was not just a method of execution. It was a way of stamping out the very memory of the person who was crucified. It was not just a painful death. It was an utterly shameful death. It was meant to, to smash and crush the humanity and dignity and legacy and memory completely out of the person who was being executed. That's why the Romans considered execution to be a fitting punishment only for slaves and those who would dare to speak truth to power. So the very fact that, that 2,000 years later, anybody would be able to remember the name of anyone who was crucified would be considered utter, utterly astonishing Not to mention that millions of people know the name of someone who is crucified. Now, there is one word that explains why 2,000 years later, anybody would remember, millions of people would remember the name of a crucified criminal. There's, There's one word to explain that. In fact, there is one word to explain why millions of people in the world consider the values of that crucified criminal to be universally known values, such as the dignity of life, the equality of the sexes, the uh, the 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 uh, the, uh, the inherent. Uh, dignity of, of, a, of human life. There, there's, there's, only, there's one word to describe why in the Western world we consider that these truths are self-evident, when, as we're going to see a little later on. They are clearly not self-evident. The one word that explains why we can remember the name of this crucified criminal and why we hold values such as forgiveness to be sacred in our culture, the word is resurrection. And resurrection simply means this, Jesus of Nazareth after he was really dead, really came alive. And the question I want you to consider, now I realize there are people all in, this, in this auditorium all over the spectrum with regard to Christianity. Uh, you may consider yourself uh, not to be Christian at all, and you know you're not. Uh, you may consider yourself to be like, I'm, I'm tr- still trying to understand what Christianity is all about. I'm kind of leaning in a little bit. Uh, maybe you're leaning out a little bit, or I don't know where you're at, Right? Um, but I, I will say this: that a lot of people fall into one or two categories about this idea of the resurrection. I want you to consider this morning: what do you think about the resurrection? That's what I want you to think about, and I'm going to ask you to follow Paul's reasoning here in First Corinthians 15, with with the, the understanding that this is a text that was written within two decades of the death of Jesus. Okay? What do you think about the resurrection? Now, most people, uh, some people would say this. I think the resurrection, this I'm speaking for a group of people, a lot of people would say, I think the resurrection is a really beautiful idea. Uh, I think it's a very valuable idea. In fact, I think it's one of the reasons why Christianity has become so successful, because um, resurrection speaks of the hope uh, that there is of, of light after darkness, of, of some sort of uh, a spring after a, a deep and lifeless winter. I, people would say, I, I think the resurrection is a beautiful idea, and I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't condemn people who believe in it, but thank goodness it didn't really have to happen. Uh, thank goodness it's not necessary to believe that a dead man really came alive in order to believe in all these things that Christians hold so dear. And that, that's a perspective that a lot of people have. They, they think this, why ruin something as beautiful as Christianity with something as cringe-worthy as the resurrection, all right? Now, that's, that's a, a common way of thinking, and, and I'll, I'll talk about that in just a moment. Here's another common way of thinking. Maybe you, maybe you think, that's not me. I do believe that there's a resurrection. I do consider myself a Christian. I do hold these things to be value. After all, as a Christian, I hold a, I, I hold a lot of cringeworthy views. Okay? Maybe you'd say that there's a lot of things that I do and believe as a Christian, that, that, and, and the resurrection is one of them. But, if the resurrection didn't really happen... I would still be a Christian. Maybe you think that way. Maybe you think the resurrection wouldn't happen. It would be kind of like someone running a race and, oh, tragically, they they lose their leg in the race, but they can still hobble their way to the finish line. Now, both of those perspectives have this in common. Both of those perspectives had this idea that whether or not we live lives of meaning and value doesn't really depend on whether a man came alive from the dead. We can, both both these perspectives say this, we could still live a life of meaning and value even if the resurrection were not technically, literally true. The question I want you to consider is this, what would the Apostle Paul have to say about that from this passage? The verse I read to you, and if you have your Bible, you can look back at it in verse 16 or verse 17, he says, if Christ has not been raised, if Christ has not been raised, here is his logic. Your faith is admirable. Uh, Your faith is still valuable. No, he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's actually pointless. And then he goes on and says this in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all of most people still to be considered somewhat noble on a valuable path toward self-discovery and moral improvement. No, he says, if Christ hasn't been raised then we are the most pathetic people in the world. <laughs> in other words, for Paul, the, the metaphor isn't like, okay, a runner can still finish a race hobbling to the finish line with only one leg. No, he says this, if the resurrection didn't happen, it's like there's no finish line, no start line, no boundaries, no up, no down, no down, no dimensions, no anything. There is no sense of morality, no sense of justice. We're in this topsy-turvy world in which there are no, there's no meaning, no values, no absolutes. That's why he says later on in this passage, he says, if Christ is not raised, he says, we might as well just say, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, because this life is all we got to it, so live it up. So here's my, here's my, the main thing I want to get across this morning, the next few minutes I have it, I'm going to walk you through this, through, through Paul's reasoning, is this, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Nothing matters. but if he did it changes everything okay if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, nothing matters. there's really no values there's no more at least there's none that we can be certain of but if he did it changes everything and this is the this is the point that no matter where you are with reference to Christianity I, I want to I want you to come to grips with because you'll see in just a moment. so I'm going to unfold this in two parts. first of all, why the resurrection matters, and second, what it means for us. So just two sections of this, two parts to this, the importance of the resurrection and the implications of the resurrection, okay? Why the resurrection matters and what this means for us. So let's, let's first of all look at this idea of why the resurrection matters. Um, and I'll unfold this in two, in two parts, okay? We're going to look at a puzzling irony and historical reality. Um, I want to consider under the, the heading, why the resurrection matters, a puzzling irony, and, and the irony is this, a lot of people say we can uphold human rights, we can insist that, that every individual has intrinsic value, um, we can value the power of love and forgiveness over hatred and resentment, um, we can fight injustice, but we, but we don't have to believe in the resurrection. I, I consider that to be a massive irony and I'll explain, I'll explain why. Uh, you might say, well, aren't those things self-evident? I mean, isn't it self-evident that people have inherent value? Isn't it self-evident that justice is better than injustice? Isn't it self-evident that forgiveness triumphs over hatred? Y- you could say, even our founding fathers, they wrote this in the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Well here's the reality, my friends. If you travel to cultures that are untouched by Christianity, you will quickly discover that these values are not self-evident. I'll give you two examples. Uh, one is, uh, is an ancient one. It's from the first century Alexandria, so part of the Roman Empire. Um, a husband, this is actually we have a, we have this uh, a letter, an ancient letter remaining from that period, it would almost be as like an email. Uh, if someone were able 2,000 years from now to read an email that you sent, this would be kind of like that. And as a husband who was writing to his wife, and among other things, he was just giving her updates on things that were going on in his life, and among other things, he says, almost as if an aside, almost like in parentheses, he says, oh, and if you get pregnant again, if it's a boy, let it live. If it's a girl, throw it out. Just a common aside there. By the way, my wife, if you get pregnant, uh, if, if it's a girl, um, if it's a boy, keep him. If it's a girl, just throw it out. And this is the practice of exposing the infants. They'd put the infant on the top of a hill or even in a dumpster somewhere and just let the baby die. He didn't need, to, to argue his point here, he didn't need to stress women's rights he didn't say anything about, well, you have the right to choose, wife, because you, are, you have inherent dignity and therefore you have you know, authority over your body. No, for, for a Roman in, man in the first century, it was women's rights? What is that? You're my property and whatever you give birth to is my property either, so here's what you need to do. If that, if that feels like a foreign, if that feels like an alien planet to you, you have the resurrection to thank for that. Because the man who insisted that human beings are valuable because they are created in the image of God, he validated that truth by rising from the dead. I'll give you another example, a little more modern. 1962, a missionary, Don Richardson, tried to teach the gospel to uh, the Sawi tribe in what is now Papua, Indonesia. After months of 8-10 to hour daily learning sessions, Richardson was finally able to tell these people about Jesus Christ. So he's in, he's in Papua, Indonesia, this area that's untouched by Christianity. He told them stories about Jesus. However, when he came to the part about Jesus going into the Garden of Gethsemane and Judas, you remember Judas? What did Judas do? Judas came and betrayed Jesus. When he said Judas betrayed Jesus, the people in the Sawi tribe cheered and clapped, and Don Richardson was stunned, and he realized that their sense of moral compass is completely reversed. We hold these truths to be self-evident. My friends, they are not self-evident. I'm not saying that every culture is as absolutely depraved as it could be, what I am saying is that the values that we, so many values in this culture that we assume are valuable, we assume are valuable because there was a man in the first century who taught them and who proved the value of forgiveness, for example. The person, if if indeed the man who said to his persecutors who was crucifying him, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If his life had just been ended right there, of course forgiveness would be laughable. But why is forgiveness not laughable? Because the man who modeled ultimate forgiveness demonstrated the power of that forgiveness by defeating death. See, there's this irony here in our culture that we think that we can hold these values and we can uphold justice and and the the intrinsic value of human life and at the same time deny the historical basis that gives us any sense that these are real values. The irony is that some people assume resurrection values while denying the real basis of these values. Now, you might be thinking, okay, are you saying that just because we have things that we value that we could tie to the resurrection. That's why we should believe in the resurrection. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying if you, wa- if you really value these things, don't you want to know that there is any sort of real value to them? I mean, don't you want to know that there is some sense of up and down? I mean, if, you, if these things are valuable to you, don't you want to know why? Wouldn't you be willing to investigate the historical claims for the resurrection? So, there's a puzzling irony, we're under why is the resurrection important, there's a puzzling irony, but here there's also historical evidence. Now, let me just warn you, because I, I, I know I'm speaking to a, a, a Christians and people who may not consider yourself Christians, or just somewhere in between, maybe you just don't know exactly where you are with reference to Christianity. If you start poking into the uh, evidence for the resurrection, I warn you, you'll get hooked. I mean, if you want to remain kind of stubbornly in your agnosticism about whether Jesus rose from the dead, don't start researching this, okay? Because what you're going to find is that that the the most stubborn piece of historical evidence that everyone has to deal with is why Christianity ever gained traction at all. We could divide the lines of evidence uh, basically into three parts, For the resurrection of Christ, and just to give you kind of pegs to hang your thoughts on, uh, there is the, the the records of the resurrection are early, the accounts are authentic, and the third is Christianity got started. The records are early. There was a time when people, before people really understood how old these documents really were, they thought, oh, you know what, these, these documents, the New Testament, were written generations after, uh, after the time of, of Jesus. Why? Because it takes generations for myths to arise. I mean, it, at, at least the, the people that were lived around the time of the guy had to die, and, and, and it, eventually it takes at least like three or four generations for, some, for someone to assign a deity to someone uh, who was dead. But then yeah, they realize, oh, these documents were written within 20 years of Jesus' death and, and the material from which these documents are derived are even earlier. So the, the records are earlier. A second line of evidence is that the accounts just have the ring of authenticity. For example, the gospel writers record that the first eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ were women, that doesn't, that doesn't strike us as unusual at all, but in that day, women were not considered to be credible, credible witnesses. Their witness would not have stood up in any court, court of law, and yet the, the people who recounted the facts of the resurrection simply had to record it as it happened. The first people to see Jesus were women. Uh, even the, the, the details about, uh, related to Jesus' resurrection, it says he ate fish. Why? That's just not the sort of detail that you throw in there if you're trying to create a myth. No, he ate, he, he said to his disciples, he said, Give me something to eat. You're going to see that I'm flesh and bones. Flesh and bones don't eat. Uh, our spirit doesn't have flesh and bones like, like I do. Jesus is saying, No, I'm, I'm real. Touch me, feel me. I have a real body. So the records are early, the accounts are authentic. And the third line of evidence under the historical evidence for the resurrection is just this, Christianity got started. How in the world the the city in which Jesus was crucified became the epicenter for a message that he was risen? You think, well, that was already part of their plausibility structure. I mean, ancient people, they were so gullible, so superstitious. Read the gospel accounts. They didn't believe it until they saw it. People just didn't pop out of their graves all the time. This is this was not part of their plausibility structure. The Jews themselves did not have a category for a man who is called a God. How, how is it possible that a, a Jewish man, such we call him doubting Thomas now, a, a strict monotheist who would believe in only in one God stands before a human being who had, who had been dead and falls before him and says, My Lord and my God? How can this happen unless Jesus had actually risen from the dead? So, why don't people believe it? There's this puzzling irony. It seems like we want to believe it. It seems like our our Western values are resting upon the assumption that truth triumphs over power, that justice triumphs over injustice, that forgiveness is good, that love will win over over hate. I mean, it seems like we want to believe these things. It seems like these are values. Why wouldn't we want to examine the evidence? Okay, examine the evidence. And when you examine the evidence, you'll think like, you'll you'll realize that even the most most, uh, hostile skeptics to this idea have certain historical data they cannot explain. Now, so why not believe it? This takes us to the second part, and that is the implications of the resurrection. What, what does this mean now? Okay, we, we, we ask the question, why is this important? But now, what does this mean? And, and when we get to this idea of what does this mean, this is, where we get, this is where you'll start to understand why people might not want to believe this, even when there's sufficient evidence, even when, that, when the resurrection of Christ undergirds values. Western values. It is because, if Jesus is alive, it changes everything. For you, you can't be neutral to it. I mean, the the, the evidence for the resurrection takes you to a fork in the road, and you're going to have to decide which which uh, direction you're going to take that. That that's why that's why the resurrection people. It, it's not. It's not the, evident, the lack of evidence so much, nor is it the desire. I mean, I was, I was reading an interview between an author of a book named Stephen T. Asma and someone who's interviewing him. And he's written books on monsters and zombies, and and they're trying to figure out why is it that people believe in in zombies, or, or why are we fascinated by zombies? Um, I've written, I've read some uh, recent polls about as the as um, people's adherence to organized religion is is declining, simultaneously people's belief in ghosts are going up, and it's the same, it's the people who are, whose uh, adherence to, uh, to religion, it's the same people who are beginning to believe in ghosts. This professor of philosophy that I, I referred to earlier said that he's done these in- informal surveys among his college students, and he's finding, uh, to his alarm, that, that although they uh, have uh, begin to, like, just dispense of their religion. He's not alarmed by that. He's happy about that. They, they are continuing to believe in, in, in the supernatural, in, in ghosts. Wh- why is this? It, it is because people want to believe in this, okay? If, if that's the case, why are people denying the resurrection? Ghosts don't make a demand on your life. Neither do zombies. But a resurrected man who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life does he, he, see, th- this is the choice that we face. We, we, cannot, we cannot say this, I'm going to embrace all these things, these values, forgiveness, the inherent dignity of human beings, the fight for justice, all, the, all my, my social justice efforts. You, you can't embrace this and erase the resurrection. No, you erase the resurrection to be consistent, logically. You need to let go of all those things too. Why? Paul, ar- Paul argued this point. He said, if the dead are not raised and if Christ is not raised, then just you might as well eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Just do whatever you want. There is no up. There is no down. See, there are three implications I want to point out about, of the resurrection. What does it mean? All right, first of all, there's an implication about Jesus. It means that he is king. If you have 1 Corinthians open, look at verse uh, 24. It says this, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power, for he must reign. What does that mean? It means Jesus is king. Why is Jesus king? Because he defeated death. There is a, uh, a play uh, by Oscar Wilde, um, and in that play... You can look this up, it's very interesting. It's, there's a drama about Herod the king hearing that Jesus was raising the dead. And one of Herod's servants, this isn't in the Bible, this is in the play, but one of Herod's servants comes to Herod and he tells him, uh, Herod, there's a, there's a guy out there and he's raising dead people. And Herod says this, I do not wish him to do that. I forbid him to do that. I suffer no man to raise the dead. This man must be found and told that I forbid him to raise the dead. Where is this man? Why would a king forbid someone to raise the dead? Because the sword is the king's ultimate authority. The power of an emperor or a king to muster an army and to take the life of his enemies, that's as powerful as he can get. He has no power beyond the grave. So if someone can snatch that power from him, Herod has no power. Caesar has no power. It was a common mantra in the the ancient world for people to say, Caesar is Lord. The Christians came along and they started saying something different. They started saying, Jesus is Lord. Jesus kurios, he is Lord. Why were they saying that? Because Jesus had taken the last enemy of any earthly king right out of his hands because he conquered death and he is the Lord of life. And if he's the Lord of life, my friends, he's the Lord of all. And that's why the evidence for the resurrection and all these cultural considerations that I've pointed out to you, and there are many more, brings you to this point of decision. It means something about Jesus. Second, it means something about you. It means that you are either on his side or you aren't. This is what Paul was referring to in verse 1 when he talks about believing the gospel. What is the gospel? It is the good news. Every every king would tremble at the thought that there were people under his domain who believed in a king who can raise the dead. Why? Because if there is someone who can raise the dead, I have no power. It it is only terrifying news to those who want to keep a grip on their own power. But the apostles and the early Christians didn't call this terrifying news, they called it what? Good news. Why is it good news? Because this message tells us, oh, that although we are constantly under the fear of death, and yes, death overtakes every person, there is one man who has defeated death, and by trusting in him, he will raise you too. That's why the, the gospel is called good news. It's not a message that somehow you can achieve salvation on your own. It's not a message that somehow you can claw your way to heaven or pry open God's blessings by your own. No, it is a message not about how you can get to God. It's a message about how God has come to you in Jesus Christ. That's good news. That's the gospel. And what it means for you is that if you trust in Jesus, swear your allegiance to Him and Him alone, and swear off your allegiance to all these other things that have ruled and dominated you, the Bible says you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus kurios, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, the Bible says you will be saved. That's good news. That's good news for everybody. Everybody. It means something about Jesus, that he's king. It means something about you, that you are either on his side or not, but that you can be by trusting in him. And finally, it means something about what you do. All right. And this is where I want to point out the last verse in this chapter. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is verse 58 of chapter 15. Paul's reasoning is this. Jesus is alive. The resurrection is real. People have seen him. You can't deny it. What does that mean? It means Jesus is king. What does that mean for you, You could either trust him or reject him. What does that mean for you if you've trusted him? It means that what you do is not meaningless. It means that you can be always abounding in the king's work. Let's rewind a little bit. What's the king's work? You know what Jesus did. You know the stories about him. You know that Jesus went around and he was healing people. He loved people. Jesus touched the untouchable. Jesus spent time with people that no one else wanted to spend time with. Jesus put himself right in the middle of our sickness and sin and suffering. That's the king's work. Jesus wiped the tears of a grieving widow. Jesus invited children whom his disciples would have rebuffed and said, let them come to me. What is the work of King Jesus? The work of King Jesus is to bring joy instead of sorrow, hope instead of despair, healing instead of sickness, justice instead of injustice. That's the work of the king. And if he's dead, none of those things matter. But if he's alive, and you, then you can always abound in the king's work. The work you're doing to bring justice to places of injustice, to bring light to places of darkness, that's the king's work, Paul is saying, so always abound in it. If he's dead, then none of those things matter. Oh, but my friends, if he's alive, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the the work of the Lord. That is the work of King Jesus. Why? Because you know your work is not in vain in the Lord. Now, if you're the sort of person who values justice and fairness and helping the poor, then then why not see the very foundation of those values in the fact that Jesus has defeated death and trusted him? Or, or perhaps and, if you believe that Jesus has risen from the dead, then why not also see all the implications of Jesus' resurrection and try to bring goodness and justice to every square inch of your life? That's the King's work. This not only affects our work; it affects our hope. I was talking with uh, one of one of our men during the fellowship time in the in the fellowship hall, and he shared with me that a close relative of his was dying, when he and his wife went off to the Holy Land, and when, before they left, the dying relative said to him, bring me back a picture of the empty tomb. The empty tomb, my friends, Jesus is alive, and therefore we can be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, my friends, we're going to have a baptism. We're going to have we're going to hear a a, gr- a group sing in just a moment, but let me give let me give you something a specific way you can respond. Uh, if you if you're sitting here and you're listening to this and you're like, I really want to find out more about this, or you might say, I think what you're saying seems it seems coherent. It seems like it makes sense, but I have a ton of questions. 10 minutes after the close of the service, I'm going to be in the fellowship hall. If you go up this way to the left, uh, to, if you go at these double doors and look to the left, uh, you'll see some stairs that, that go up if you're not familiar with this property. And I'm going to be in there, and I would love to be able to talk with you and ask any questions you have. Maybe maybe it's not even a question about this sermon. Maybe it's just something uh, something that you've wondered about Christianity or even about this church. I would be happy to talk with you. But don't leave this place. Don't leave here feeling right now that you need to make some sort of commitment to the resurrected Christ and not make it. Because it could be that that tug in your heart that you feel but can't explain is actually God's spirit working in you. Don't ignore it. Don't push it away. And if you're here and you're a believer and you know that Jesus is risen from the dead, my friend, rejoice and abound in the work of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you have promised us eternal life because of the resurrection. And I pray that you'd continue this work in our lives, in our hearts. I pray for uh, anyone this morning who is discouraged, uh, who is facing deep trials, who is feeling maybe even in despair because they feel so worthless, so unworthy. I pray that whoever that is, would know that you loved them enough to die on the cross for them, so that they would see themselves, yes, as more sinful than they knew, but also as more loved than they ever dared to imagine. And I pray that that conviction, that realization, would sprout in them such a hope and faith that would cling to Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in addition to celebrating the resurrection, uh, we also have the joy of seeing four people follow the Lord in baptism, and uh, baptism is an amazing and wonderful way a person declares their allegiance to King Jesus, and the, the metaphor of a person going down into water and then coming back out of water is so rich and full of meaning. Uh, the, the obvious one is uh, identifying so closely with Christ in his death and burial and resurrection. We're gonna, you're going to see that a, in a moment. But there are many other aspects in which this, the, the, the baptism communicates the truth of the gospel. For example, uh, Paul speaks of someone being baptized into the Spirit. When a person believes in Jesus as their Lord and Savior... Jesus puts his spirit into that person, just like pouring water out onto a dry and desiccated land so that land can burst up with fruitfulness. So that's one thing that's being communicated by baptism. Another thing, uh, in addition to being identified with Christ in his death and burial, in his burial and resurrection and the the outpouring of the spirit, uh, there's also a sense in which baptism communicates the fact that when a person trusts in Jesus Christ and is filled with God's spirit, That person is also connected in vital and important ways to other people who have also believed in Jesus and are filled with His Spirit. Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 12 of being baptized into the body of Christ. When he says body, he is not referring to Jesus' physical body, he's referring to Jesus' family, the church. And so that's one reason why when two of the people that are going to be baptized um, will will not only be be baptized today... But I'm going to invite the voting members of Trinity Baptist Church to vote them into our membership uh, as, they, as they get baptized. So uh, we're going to do that for Sarah uh, Harrison and for uh, Lindsay as well. So uh, that will be, we have the joy not only of seeing people baptized, but also inviting them into our membership at, at Trinity Baptist Church. Baptism uh, is a way a person expresses their loyalty and allegiance to Christ. So we're going to go in alphabetical order. And Sarah, would you come? And uh, it has been such a joy to get to know Sarah. Uh, she uh, several months ago she called me and she told me how it was that she trusted in Christ as her Savior. And uh, what a story that was, uh, Sarah. And so thrilled um, to be able to participate in this with you. I know that um, that uh, Sarah and her family would appreciate your prayers at this time, especially uh, many of you know Sue Capucci, who is uh, uh, Sarah's sister. A ver- has had a very uh, troubling diagnosis uh, as a result of her cancer. So we're going to be praying for her as well as that. Sarah, I'm going to ask you to turn around and face the, face the congregation as I, as I read your testimony. Sarah wanted me to read this. She had several versions. They're all great, but this was the one that she condensed down a little bit for us. Sarah says this, I was born into a Christian family with my dad being a Baptist minister. I have claimed to be a Christian for 50 years attending Christian schools, working as a summer missionary, and serving in several churches. My entire adult life showed evidence of my claim and was deeply marred by my daily sinful habits. Although I often attended church, I was living a life of disobedience. I've battled with severe depression and anxiety, especially after being assaulted and I abused alcohol and medications. After my mother's passing in March of 2021 I started digging into God's word and came upon 1 John 2:19 which says they went out from us but they did not really belong to us for if they had belonged to us they would have remained with us but their going out showed that none of them belonged to us I was convicted and made this scripture my own on May 13th 2021 I called upon the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins and gave my life to him. What a difference he has made in my life. I am being baptized to publicly proclaim my faith that Jesus is my Savior. I have died to self and walk in newness of life as I have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I am so thankful for my dedicated family who has prayed for me for decades. Sarah, I'm going to ask you three questions and give you a chance to affirm them by just saying, I do, in response to them, okay? Sarah, do you believe that Jesus Christ, God's son, died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead for your justification? I do. Do you trust in him alone for the forgiveness and hope of eternal life? I do. And do you, by God's grace, intend to be his disciple, obey his word, and walk in the spirit? I do. Thank you, Sarah. You can have a seat right here. Well, Sarah, upon the profession of your faith in the Lord Jesus and in obedience to his command, I baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, buried with him in the likeness of his death, raised with him in the likeness of his resurrection. Praise the Lord, Sarah. So thank you for that. All right. Well, next to be baptized is um, Lindsay, and uh, I'm going to ask uh, Joe to come as well. Uh, Joe and Lindsay have been attending uh, here for a few months, and um, we have, uh, actually, Chris and I have the joy of having them in our life group, and so we've been able to get to, get to know them on Sunday evenings. So uh, Joe is going to share uh, his testimony of salvation. You know, I forgot to, inv- uh, to have us vote to Sarah as, as a member. Shall we do that? <laughs> Let's do that now. All right, so Sarah's back here, I promise. She's just getting dried off. So if you, do you want to poke your head around here, Sarah, so we can see see you? It's important to be able to see you while we vote, vote into your membership. There, there she is. All right, so if you're a voting member of Trinity Baptist Church and you'd like to receive Sarah Harrison into our membership, please let that be known by saying amen. amen. All right, praise the Lord, Sarah. You're in. All right. Okay. So, Joe, would you
5: share your testimony of salvation, then? In a Christian family. By the time I was 10, I had made a couple professions of faith, but they were mostly just due to pressure from others and because that's just what Christians did. When I was 11, a member of our church was preaching Sunday night about salvation and how Jesus paid the price for our sins on the cross. The message deeply convicted me, and later that night, I got out of bed to discuss with my parents my need for salvation. I prayed to God, confessed my sins, and received his gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, like it says in Romans 10, 9 through 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. A year or two after I was saved, I demonstrated my faith publicly by getting baptized in front of my church. Lindsay and I are looking forward to becoming members of Trinity and to serve in the church and share in the community of Christ's body. Thank you, Thank you, Joe. All right, Lindsay.
6: I trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior at the age of seven. I remember flipping through a book my family owned that had different Bible stories in it with illustrations. I remember a specific picture that stuck out to me, a portrayal of Jesus carrying a lamb on his shoulders. I had heard all the stories of how they used to sacrifice innocent lambs in the Old Testament since sin requires a payment. And when I looked at that picture, God worked in my heart and helped me to realize that Jesus, an innocent lamb, had come to die for my sin. I was able to talk with my mom right after that and I prayed that Jesus would forgive me for my sins and I trusted Christ as my savior. Through my teen years, I struggled with thinking that my works could gain me some merit with God. I felt that if I missed a day spending time with God or sinned, that God would be angry with me. But God was gracious in continually and gently showing me that my righteousness is not anything that I have done or will do, but it's only from the robes of righteousness he has given me through the blood of Jesus. Titus 3.5 says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost.
2: Thank you so much, Lindsay, for sharing that testimony. And um, Lindsay, I'm going to read to you those questions and ask you to affirm them by saying, I do. Do you believe that Jesus Christ, God's son, died on the cross for your sin and was raised for your justification? I do. Do you trust in him alone for forgiveness and the hope of eternal life? I do. And do you, by God's grace, intend to be his disciple, obey his word, and walk in the spirit? I do. Well then uh, Lindsay, you could have a seat here then. Upon the profession of your faith in the Lord Jesus and obedience to his command, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, buried with him in the likeness of his death, raised with him in the likeness of his resurrection. <laughs> Both Joe and Joe and uh, Lindsay have uh, given their testimonies for membership. And so if you're a voting member of Trinity Baptist Church and would like to uh, receive them into our membership, would you let that be known by saying amen? amen. All right, thank you. Welcome. All right, the next to be baptized is uh, Hannah Skarupski, And uh, it has been, again, just like these others, a joy to get to know Hannah uh, better, to meet with her and her parents. And hear of how she has uh, trusted in the Lord. And earlier in the message I said that Jesus said, let the children come to me. And I'm so thankful uh, for, a G- for Jesus who uh, welcomed the children and made the gospel simple enough for young ones to understand. In fact, Jesus said, unless you become like a child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. To have that faith-like, simple, obedient faith and obedience is what God requires of us all. all. So Hannah, you want to read your testimony? Here you go.
1: When I was seven years old, I got saved. I was sitting alone waiting for my family to come together as we do every night to do family devotionals and pray. At that moment, I felt the need to be saved. Then I remembered the Sunday school lesson I was taught about Jesus taking my old, black, sinful heart and replacing it with the new, clean, pure heart. So I said to the Lord... Please forgive me, please forgive me of all my sins and please take my dirty, sinful, old heart and replace it with a new, clean heart. After I prayed, I told my parents I just got saved. That night I felt happy and I thanked the Lord for everything he's done for me. And the verse that really stood out to me was, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me, Psalms 51.10.
2: Thank you so much, Hannah. Hannah, I'll ask you those same questions and you can say, I do, to affirm your faith in Christ. Do you believe that Jesus Christ, God's Son, died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead for your justification? I do. Do you trust in Him alone for forgiveness and the hope of eternal life? I do. And do you, by God's grace, intend to be His disciple, obey His word, and walk in the Spirit? I do. Very good. Well, Hannah, you could have a seat here then. And upon your profession of faith in the Lord Jesus, And in obedience to his command, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, buried with him in the likeness of his death, raised with him in the likeness of his resurrection. And finally, I I have this morning the privilege of baptizing my daughter. So Anna Grace will come and uh, share her testimony. Would you like to read it? All right.
1: I trusted in Jesus as my Savior when I was younger, about three years ago. I felt that I was missing something before I trusted Jesus. Now I have committed myself to him, and I want his love to shine through me to everyone I meet, like sun rays shooting through clouds. A verse from the Bible that reminds me of God's love is Romans eight thirty eight through 9, 39. I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord.
2: Very good, Anna Grace. And I'll read you these questions and give you a chance to respond by saying, I do. Anna Grace, do you believe that Jesus Christ, God's Son, died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead for your justification? I do. Do you trust in Him alone for forgiveness and the hope of eternal life? I do. And do you, by God's grace, intend to be His disciple, obey His word, and walk in the Spirit? I do. All right, Anna Grace. Well, you could have a seat right here. <clears throat> Upon the profession of your faith and in obedience to the Lord Jesus, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, buried with Him in the likeness of His death, raised with Him in the likeness of His resurrection.
0: Let's respond this morning by singing of the power of the cross. This is the power of the cross, the, the power to bring broken-hearted people into uh, a life with a relationship with Christ into worshiping him for who he is into letting go of our old sins and accepting who he is and what he has done for us so if any here need to know of no know this morning meet pastor jonathan 10 minutes after the service he'll be in the uh, fellowship hall meet him there you too can experience the power of the cross let's stand together to respond See the dawn.
2: Praise the Lord. You are dismissed.